So this is the, what is it called again? It's the South African Composers Archive. To think about that for a moment, this is also the earliest that I've spoken to someone where I haven't been trying to fix their bow grip. Um, uh, but um, let's get straight into this. Um, so the my guest today, live via Skype, which would explain the sounds and everything that you hear. Um, well, that's how audio works in general. Uh, give me a minute. I'll be awake in a moment. I promise. Um, you will know her for her many, many compositions for saxophone. Uh, you will know her as the 2014 composer in residence at the Johannesburg International Music Festival. Uh, you will know her for her ongoing Sounding Cities project with Naomi Sullivan and Luke Newby, and as well as her multiple collaborations with artist Nandipa Mtambo. All the way from Joburg, vi live via Skype, we give you Claire Loveday. Thank you very much for joining me. Morning, Matthijs, and thank you for this. This is going to be fun. I hope so. Uh, we can jump straight into the hard questions. So and this is also why I just double check that I'm still recording. Yes, all good. So let's do this. So who or what inspired you to music, as it were? Um, truthfully, Matthijs, I couldn't really do anything else. Um, <laughs> I, I was really bad at sport. I was really bad at maths. I was really bad at languages. Um it really was the only thing I could do. Right. There, there actually weren't many options, to be honest. <laughs> Did you have a, a sort of a, a musical family? Was it? Were you surrounded by it? No, not, no, not really. I mean, my mother tried in that sort of um, English-speaking South African way. I mean, we all, there was always there was often music playing in the background. But no, my family wasn't particularly musical. My father's side of the family is musical. Right. Um, but it wasn't a we all learnt music at school, as one does, but no, we weren't an especially musical family. Right. You know, not, not the sort of family that's filled with conductors and soloists and those sort of dramatic things. Right. I'm always, it, it sounds so, and I guess this is all a thing of, of perspective, I'm always amused, or not amused is maybe the wrong word, but I remember sort of adversity having friends who are like, I am the only musician from the family, you don't understand what it's like. It's just like, no, I genuinely don't understand what it's like. It's, it's sort of like, this is an option that you can have, like, non-musical <laughs> family around you. Um, I don't I understand. Mean, you're the complete opposite. You, your whole family is just, they're all musicians. It's, it's, that must be extraordinary. It's, it is, I think, a blessing and a curse at the same yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, pluses and minuses on both sides. Def I think. Definitely. So, I mean, how did? What was your first kind of uh, your first step in music, as it were? You you were a pianist, or yes, are a pianist? So yeah. I started. I started out as a pianist. Yeah. Um, I had a, a brief and unsuccessful foray into the guitar, which did not last long. <laughs> okay. Um, and so I studied piano at university and cello, which I played with enthusiasm, but not terribly well. Right. Um, and I did a jazz undergrad degree at Wits, believe it or not. Okay. Yeah, jazz piano performance, which actually, as I get older, I'm not turning back to, but I'm feeling less ashamed of more and more, and I'm using those things, those vague <laughs> gray memories in the back of my head about what I learned in jazz. I'm starting to use it more and more and I'm really enjoying it. It's, um, 
it's a handy skill to have. I mean, I I wouldn't say that I'm well versed in jazz at all, but I think the the one of the primary reasons why I studied at UCT instead of say Stellenbosch was the the impression that I got was that at the time at any rate UCT was a lot more like we have all the departments we've got jazz we've got opera and it's all sort of happening at the same time and as a composer to kind of go into a place where you're like okay well I'll absorb as much as I can from from everything if that if that makes sense yeah absolutely I mean I think I think it's really helpful to have a broad a broader undergraduate education rather than a very focused one although of course like families, it's pluses and minuses on, on all sides. Yes. Um, I'm really glad that I did that undergrad degree. Not that I actually remember ever learning anything, but I must have. Right. If I have these. But you know what else it is? It's not just also, it's also not about what you learn. It's about the kind of things you listen to, the things you're interested in. So, I mean, jazz, piano. I mean, I just adore the pianists like Chick Corea and the gorgeous harmonies of Bill Evans. Right. And I think, I mean, these things permeate, you know, and they stick around. And yes. I, that's good. That's yes. good. So, I mean, when, when, or what led you to first composing, to writing something? Well, I mean, you had to write a few things when you were an undergrad, and I enjoyed that. It was nice. Right. Um, and then when I left university and I went into advertising i did quite a lot of jingles and i really enjoyed that too it's a different animal that one yes but, but it was fun it was fun and i really enjoyed the the 32nd piece of music um and then uh, sort of by chance i got a commission from the foundation of the creative arts which i think was in around 1997 and that i got through a choreographer and i kind of enjoyed doing that but truthfully i i got really really interested in composition when i got divorced uh and i decided after i got divorced that i needed to do something for myself and so i went and did a master's in composition and that's when i really that's when it really grabbed me sure so so you you formally studied composing much later yes yeah yes yes yeah and i think this happens quite often with women that they get to things a bit later, maybe because they've had children or it's just a confidence issue, but you often find that women get to composition a bit later. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. I, it's again, it, it's sort of that thing from, you know, growing up in an environment where it's just like, it's quite normal to be writing at the age of nine. That it's, it, it's yeah, it, it, again, it's a whole thing of perspective, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so yeah. You, you mentioned your uh, your. Oh, actually, uh, seeing you brought it up, why do you feel that uh, that it, it's a case that one were to start later as a woman? Uh, yeah, you know, I really, really don't know, Mateus. I really don't know, and I think it would make a very interesting project for a musicologist or someone like that. Right. Uh, I think you often find women do things a little bit later. I mean, I think biology does play a part in this. Okay. Um, and being a composer does require a level of confidence that I think a lot of young women simply don't have. Um, I don't know. I, I'm just hypothesizing. <laughs> I'm just hypothesizing. I really don't know. I've also realized... Really Maybe it's changing. I hope it's changing. I, yeah, I'd, I'd hope so. I'd, I've also realized because we're doing this as a Skype audio thing that you can't hear me nodding when you say things. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, no, I'm, agree I'm agreeing with... Oh, wait, no, she, she doesn't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I thought I was talking into a vacuum. No, hey, I'm, no, no, I'm, I'm still here. Um, so you mentioned uh, your first commission. Yeah, 
Tell me a little yes. bit more about that. Was it set for dance, a dance project? It was for Dance Umbrella, and they had a commissioned choreographer who commissioned a work from me, which is a work that will never see the light of day again, I'm pleased to say. However, what that piece did do, um, I didn't know who to write for, and the only and the best musician I could think of was Kerry Mulwyn Hughes, who was a sax, who is a saxophonist. So I thought, well, I'll write for her because I know her, and I know she plays nicely, and I'll play the piano, and this will be good. Yes. Um, and that's when I fell in love with the sax with the classical saxophone. I was going to say, uh, I, I definitely need to ask you about this. As there, I was trying to word the question, thinking about it yesterday. It, it's a bit of an odd question as much as that uh, I'm sure if one looks at it carefully, or most composers, you will see that there definitely is something as, in inverted commas, a voice. But it, it's yeah. kind of rare, I find, uh, or maybe I'm, I'm just not looking in the right places, of someone who's like, you know, this is, this is my voice, this instrument, like a specific instrument. Um, so, yeah, you say, sorry, you were saying you completely fell in love with the saxophone. Yeah, I mean, I don't think the, the saxophone is my voice, but I think the saxophone is my... It's a bit like Kevin Volans and string quartets, right. you know? It's your it's it's kind of the thing that, that's sort of where I found my niche. Right. The thing where I found my niche. That and interdisciplinary work. I mean, it doesn't mean I don't love writing for other instruments. Right. Um, but it is the one that still gives me a thrill. It's my first love. You, you, know? you don't play it at all. No, I no. tried once, it did not go well, um, <laughs> so I won't do that again, and I think it's good not to play the instrument you're most in love with, because if you start to play it, you'll start writing for your limitations. That's interesting. It's I, I remember someone saying to me, talking about the Sibelius Violin Concerto, that if I understand correctly, he was a violinist. So it was sort of that thing of like, well, I know what's possible. I'm going to make you do all the technical things and within the same bar, kind of like your problem. <laughs> you deal with it. Yeah, I think there's a wonderful freedom in in writing so much for an instrument that you don't actually play. And I think you probably approach it in a different way, think about it in a different way, um, and imagine it in different ways. Yes. I I mean I'm very much glued to to string writing that does uh that I guess it is because it's my first instrument like I I think I probably fall in in the Sibelius camp of like let's do everything at once kind of along those lines. <laughs> yes, yes. So but so speaking of earlier music you mentioned uh, a piece in an email called Palimpsest if I'm pronouncing yes. that correct. Um, so yep. that is for saxophone and organ. Yeah. It's uh, please tell me tell me more about this piece. Well, I mean, saxophone and organ is not that unusual. Uh, I think with young, oh no, that was the Hilliard Ensemble. There is a CD. Uh, there was a an, an album made of saxophone and organ, of course, which I now can't remember because I'm <laughs> old and going bonkers. But um, it was for I wrote. For, I did it as part of my masters. Again, I wrote for Kerry Mulwyn Hughes, and the organist was Gerrit Jordan, who's just the most wonderful musician. Um, and I love the idea of the way the organ and the saxophone kind of can kind of meld in together. Um, it's there's something about the pipes of the organ where it's all you can almost make it sound like the saxophone's coming out of the organ. It's such a 
gorgeous combination. It, it's a beautiful blend. I had, I had, was listening yeah. to the piece yesterday, and I'd never heard that combination of instruments before. It yeah, did take it me. Well? Sorry. Doesn't it go well? It works fantastically. It took me a brief second. I was like, is that a horn? No, that is a sax. That's sort of the, just the, the timbre is sort of melded together. It works really, really well. And I think also something like the saxophone um, can at least compete with the, the, just the volume of an instrument like the organ. Um, and I think it's also the, the kind of depth of the sound. You know, if you put a flute with an organ, it would just disappear. Yes. Um, but the kind of depth of sound of the organ and the depth of sound of the saxophone just makes this, like, big, beautiful, deep, rich sound. Yes. I I always think of that, that silly joke that my dad told me when I was growing up, which is how do you make... Uh, how do you make a chainsaw sound like a baritone saxophone which is you add vibrato but oh that is so rude that is so rude tell your father I am not amused <laughs> I will pass that on that is so rude oh my word I'm positively offended <laughs>
how do you work? What what is uh, what is your your process? <laughs> well, it depends a little bit on the piece, but the first thing I do is find a large brick wall and smack my head against it for <laughs> at least three weeks. Right. Um, and then when I'm finally sort of wiping the blood out of my eyes. No, seriously, I tend to, you know, the way I work is changing, which I think is a very good thing. Um, I tend to find, I tend to decide on the parameters I'm going to work with. I tend to decide on a very broad structure, and I'm not talking about sonata form. I'm talking about um, uh, a musical device or an aspect of the instrument, usually an aspect of the instrument that I'm going to evolve over the duration of the piece um select a couple of things i want to explore maybe three or four things and then i try to find like a little hook in a little motive a little scale i mean earlier this year i gave a talk at stenenbosch university about my third saxophone octet and i showed how the whole octet which is i think it's 12 minutes evolved from a five-note scale, a five-note ascending semi-quaver scale. Um, So that's what I do. I tend to take like a little device and then just pull it out and pull it out and pull it out. Right. Until it can, until until either it snaps or it can be pulled no more. (laughs) It's kind of, I have, it it sort of reminds me a little bit. So one of the things that I will do, it, it's that age-old thing of, uh, I think of, um, there was a quote that uh, my violin teacher, Farida Basharova, said once to me, which was, getting a premiere is easy, getting a second performance is very, very hard. So it, it's that thing of, like, when I write, it's, it's that idea of, you know, this will probably be the only time people ever hear this thing live or at all. Um, so I'll write sort of a short motive and repeat the fuck out of it basically until when they leave, it's like, there, now you should have heard it. You, you know it now kind of thing. Yes. It'll be embedded in your head forever and ever. Yes. So do you, do you sketch or do you sort of just like leap straight into it? Once you've decided sort of what the, 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 the motive or the core is going to be. Um, well, leap right in sounds a little more a little more um, clear than I feel when I start writing. Right. Um, a little more like I have a sense of direction. Um, no, what I tend to do is just take that motive and just just work it. It's a tiny, focused, insane, nitpicky, fussy. Um, you've got to get into the zone frame of working so right i just take that motive and i just start to pull it out and i see and as you know working within that sort of broad idea i have i just want to see where it goes and all the time that i'm doing that i'm trying to find that little magic moment when you do something and you just think there it is yes that's it that's it um and that can take a long time it can be very short as well but you know that little magic moment when you think i've got it Right. And then the piece tends to just run. Then it kind of writes itself. Right. So, um, who uh, you sort of mentioned a little bit earlier of uh, the the jazz pianists. Who? What is your biggest influence musically? Yeah, I knew you were going to ask me this. Um, <laughs> I think probably this is very difficult. 
Um, look, there are a lot of things that influence, as you well know. Yeah. I mean, I can hear like a, a billion influences in your music, which yes. is fantastic. Um, I think probably my biggest influence is Kevin Volans. And not so much what he writes, but his approach to writing. Um, you know, how, how he approaches writing, I think, is, has definitely has definitely influenced me in extraordinary ways. Right. Um, I would say he is my most important influence. The second most is probably Michael Blake, because he took me for the last two years of my doctorate, and I think I learned more about composition from him than I learned from anybody else in my studies that far. Right. Um, he's an extraordinarily good teacher. And then, the, I mean, the other other influences are, I mean, of course, there are lots of other musical influences, but influences are not only musical, they're also extra musical. Um, and I think that one of the things, I mean, I'm also very influenced by players of instruments and that sort of thing, but I also think one of the things that influences me is the place I live. Right. Yeah. Which kind of ties in quite nicely to the the next question. I know from what we were we were talking about in in our emails, which uh, the question is, how would you describe your current style? But this is more in connection to uh, to to play an example of something more current. And you mentioned there were two works, and one going to about the place where you live is the mm. Sounding Cities project. Mm. Tell me a little bit about that. Um, so this is a project that was born last year when my husband, who's an academic, had a two-month fellowship in Oxford. And I've been to Oxford before and found the music department somewhat less than exciting. Okay. So uh, knowing that Birmingham was an interesting place for new music and had a great saxophone department, I most evilly, when Luke Newby, who studied at Birmingham, when he asked to buy a school from me, I said, I'm not going to charge you for the school, but I want you to link me into a contact at Birmingham. Okay. And he put me in touch with Naomi Sullivan, who is head of saxophone, the head of Woodwind, actually, at Birmingham. And it ended up with, last year, we did a, a concert in Birmingham called Crossing Paths of South African saxophone music. Um in which I do believe you were involved, if I recall correctly. I, I was, I think, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't you have a saxophone? You wrote a piece for saxophone and voice. Oh, yes, and, and wine glasses. That's right. Yes. That's right, and it was wonderful, actually. Most, it was the most wonderful performance. Anyway, I wrote a saxophone octet for Naomi's saxophone ensemble, and we had this concert last year, and, we all, and Naomi and I just got along absolutely brilliantly and thought we would like to work together again. And then Luke knew, and then we were sort of talking about it. And um, and then Luke Newby came up with this idea of doing a project where we would get a composer from Johannesburg and a composer from Birmingham and, a compo and an artist from Johannesburg and an artist from Birmingham, get them to work together. So the Johannesburg team would work together on um, talking, you know, ways of expressing their city and ditto the one in Birmingham. Um, and this was born out of the, part of this came out of the fact that I was so enamored with Birmingham and I said there's so many similarities between Birmingham and Johannesburg. Anyway, so Luke came up with this idea and Naomi and I were like, yeah, Luke, that's lovely, off you go. 
go and find the funding thinking, right, we'll never hear about that again. And blow it down, Luke got the funding. He is absolutely extraordinary. Um, he got the funding, he got this whole project together. He's like a god. He's unbelievable. Um, and so they came out in August and we had the first, the launch of Sounding Cities at the Centre for the Less Good Idea. And I wrote a piece for Luke and Naomi, which was saxophone and clarinet. And Nandipa Humboldt did a movie about Johannesburg. Right. And I've actually just now been in Birmingham, where we had the Birmingham leg, where the Birmingham pieces, they've actually got three pieces written for the Birmingham side of it by Kirsty Devaney, Rob Jones, and Ian, and his name's just popped out of my head, his surname has just popped out of my head. That was premiered. Yeah, was lovely. Oh, lovely. Yeah, that's so Going back to sort of your your uh, your style, how would you describe your current style? No, 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 no. That is that is just not a nice question, um, and that's actually a job for musicologists. Okay. So I have absolutely no idea how to describe my style. Absolutely none at all. I mean, would you say that it has changed considerably as a start from from when you began? Well, I would hope so. Um, if it hasn't, there's a problem. Right. I mean, it definitely <laughs> has. L- listening to to the works uh, that are on your SoundCloud page and the ones that you've sent me, um, mm-hmm. there is definitely quite a, like it's quite varied, or it is very varied, which is nice just to see how things change. Um, there, there thank, was... goodness, thank goodness you said that. I thought you were about to say to me, you know, there's so many similarities. And I was just going, <laughs> not, oh, at all. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. I won't yeah. give away the, the next episode because it's been pre-recorded, but I can say that there's a conversation I had with the guests there about how I feel that Philip Glass hasn't really developed and, and I was told that I'm wrong. So I don't know. That, that there are some composers, I think, who kind of are a little more similar um, yes. But yes. so the the other work that you mentioned about sort of a current piece um, is the the work Heatwave for clarinet and piano. Yes. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that? So that was um, I got an email from someone called Guy Yehuda, never heard of him, um, who was doing a project called Rhapsodies of the World, where he commissioned a composer from each continent or big land 
mass right. um, to write a piece in response to Debussy's premier rhapsody. Okay. Uh, so it's since been recorded, and there's now a, a CD of all these works that he did, and he asked me to be to do the work for Africa, you know, no pressure. Yes, um, you are representing all of us, so like, <laughs> don't fuck it up. <laughs> Not even sub-Sahara, it includes the Sahara. Yes. Um, so, yes, that's what, that's what that project came out of, and I must say, I really struggled to write that piece. I mean, I, th- I like the piece, um, and I think it's a good piece, but cheap as it was difficult to write, I, that Debussy's Premier Rhapsody is such a beautiful work. But I thought I'm supposed to be reflecting on this sort of in, we were supposed to reflect on it in our context, you know, think about how it spoke to our context. And I just thought, this piece doesn't speak to my context at all. Yes. And it's a beautiful piece. It's so beautifully written for the clarinet. Um, but I just sat and listened to this. I just thought, this isn't, this is, I can only hear this in a European concert hall. It just, says nothing to me right. um, about where I am. Yeah, anyway, fortunately, Andule Kumalo, who's brilliant if you're ever having a composition crisis, um, identified this very quickly um, when I was weeping to him over a lunch about this piece. Right. He said, this is a question of identity, and I thought that's absolutely bang on. Yes. And I went home and I wrote the piece in three weeks. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah, I, no. I just sort of I wrote against it, you know, rather than trying to write with it, I wrote against it. Right. It was it was a lovely project that I actually in the end cheap as I learned a lot.
You, you mentioned it a little bit earlier with, with jingle writing, and uh, I, I have been wondering more and more if this is a question that I will cut from, from the gauntlet at some point, but I think it, it is a little bit of a, an important question for aspiring composers, but yeah. how do you survive? How do you make a living as a composer? You don't. <laughs> I mean, it's, no, really, it's, in yeah, that no. Case, I mean, it's that simple. It's yes. really that simple. There are so few people who manage to make a living as composers. Um, it's just, I mean, unless you're willing to live like a church mouse, um, which is fine if you are, you know. Yes. Um, but church mice don't really get the good wine. things that you really don't want to write or work in. I mean, of course, you can make a living as a composer working in a commercial field, but can you really? Because you're probably doubling up as a sound engineer or whatever. Yes. It's very, very, very difficult to make a living as a composer. And most people are 
working in universities or whatever, which is why universities are so often the centre of new music because they've got funding, you know. Yes. The composers have jobs teaching and sitting on committees, yay, and other such fun things that give them, that enable them then to write music, you know. Yeah. It's, it's impo- uh, the only reason I can do what I do is because I worked in advertising for the first 20 years of my working life, earned, made a lot of money, lived like a monk. Um, I don't have children, I don't have debt. That's why I can do what I do. And I have a husband with a full-time job. Right. Thank you, Clive, for that. That's, <laughs> if, that's if, a big plus. <laughs> do you let me know if Clive is available to free <laughs> to, to Moonlight? <laughs> <rather>. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. No, it, it's interesting. Like, this, this is going to sound uh, wanky, but this is genuinely what he said to me. But there was a... I when I was in in New York, there was a masterclass that I ended up having with uh, Samuel Adler um, at at Juilliard, and he we spoke a little bit about this question of like, what do you do as a composer? How do you how do you make ends meet? How do you survive? And his suggestion to me at one point it, it was sort of along the lines of like, well, what what should I do? And his comment to me is like, well, you have two options. You can either, uh, you know, try and get a university job, hope for tenure and just hold on to it for dear life. Or you can go back to South Africa and, and try and do something and sort of, you know, in his words, try and help the scene or whatever. As I said, sounds wanky, but this is what he said to me. So took it as a bit of a challenge. So, yeah, no, it, it is that, that thing of, of the university lifestyle which i think there there are a lot of pros and cons about about universities and new music it it does uh, yeah i mean absolutely uh, you know i worked at wits for 10 years and i think you know i mean it's it's a widely it's a widely recognized fact the fact that university composition departments are notoriously conservative right um and that the changes in new music tend to happen outside of universities. So while it provides a stable environment, it also it also is quite a stifling environment. Yeah. Um, I think people like you and me, Matthias, are very lucky, actually, to be out of it. I, it was very close at one point. <laughs> yes, I know. I know. And I think I really think you made the right decision. <laughs> yeah. And I promise... Oh, no, I'll be too old. I was going to say, I promise I'll come and visit you when you're drooling into your pro-neutro in some ghastly old age home, but I'll be dead by then, so sorry, you're on your own. Well, knowing how I usually am at about 9am, you've you missed the drooling in my pro-neutro <laughs> by a good 40 minutes. Uh, <laughs> so, um, what is your favourite performance memory of a work of yours, be it rehearsal, be it the concert itself? Mm, oh, my word. Okay, well... I think, I mean, the most thrilling was when I was just starting out on my doctorate and I got a performance by the Stockholm Saxophone Quartet of my sax quartet titled, mysteriously untitled. Nice. Um, and it was just such a thrill to have such extraordinary players play a work of mine. So that sort of sticks out for the sheer thrillness of something. Yes. I think another is... Um, when Waldo Alexander played Cycles um, at the Goethe Institute, that was another uh, piece I did with Nandipa Mpambo. It was an installation. I just thought 
that was very special. Right. Um, he just Waldo's playing and his and his uh, the way in which he performs is so magnificent. He he really is exceptional. He, um, he is a and lovely then, performer. I think, and that, I, I was oh now you see I'm now I'm on a roll. Um, <laughs> The performance of Sax Octet Three last year in Birmingham was absolutely stunning. Those students played that piece. It was note perfect, but it wasn't just note perfect. It also had that bit of grit and a bit of grime in it. It was I was absolutely stunned. I couldn't believe my ears. It was magnificent. Yes. And then the opening con the opening of the Sounding Cities at the Centre for the Less Good Idea this year, that was magic. It was just magic. I mean, Naomi Sullivan is the, probably the best saxophone player I've ever worked with. She is extraordinary. And Luke Newby, I mean, he's young. You know, he's, like, he's not even 30 yet. My word, he's like a sponge with music. Anything you say to him, he just absorbs it and integrates it and makes it beautiful. It was, and Nandi did this incredible movie it was such a wonderful experience that opening so right those are them right which actually i i which good time to ask tell me about your collaboration with nandipa i from what i understand you've you've done quite a lot uh with her um so nandipa and i've been working together for quite a long time um I can't even remember when we started. I mean, it might even, it's not quite 10 years, but maybe like eight years we've been working together. We've done quite a lot of things. Um, until until that that work cycles with Waldo, the Goethe, that we did together, yes. most of the things we did was uh, movies that she made, and then I wrote music for them. Not like a soundtrack. It didn't work like that. She would give me a, we would, talk about a concept and then we go away and work on our things and then put put it together. So most of those were for her artworks. Um, so we've done, we did three of those and then we did the Goethe um, and then we did Sounding Cities. I think there was something else in between. Um, and in fact, oh, in fact, tomorrow night, Nandi is giving a TED talk, a TED talk, you know those TED yes, talks? Yes, yeah. And she's using Cycle, I think. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh... Where, where is the, the talk happening? In, in Joburg? I think it's in, I think it's in Chansburg or Cape Town. It might be in Cape Town. Okay, I well, this also I I want to see if I can try and release this episode tomorrow, so hopefully I get it in time to to punt it a little bit. Yeah, I, um, I'm not saying I'm not sure where it is, but I think it's in. I think she said it's in Cape Town. Okay. Yeah, I love working with Nandi. She is amazing, and we have I think one of the great successes of our working relationship is a strong mutual respect. Right. For, for our disciplines. I don't pretend to be an artist, and she doesn't pretend to be a musician, and we leave each other well alone in those disciplines. And I think we've made some quite unusual stuff together. Um, yeah. It's, yeah. It's fantastic, though, to have that kind of uh, long-running collaboration, as it were. I mean, I think I, it, it's not even as it were. I think that is exactly what it is. Um, it, it's that sort of thing of, like, I think of, 
uh, you know, doing stuff with like Nightlight Collective or Shart as it, as it used to be, yes. where it is that sort of like the, the longer you sort of, it, it's like any relationship, you, you invest time in it, you start growing as artists and start doing other things. And yeah, I don't know, it, it, it's fantastic yeah, when it, one finds it, that. It's absolutely true. In fact, uh, Naomi said to me when she was out here working on the Sounding Cities project with me and Nandi, she said, you and Nandi know each, know each other so well. Just just a look, at each, just a look, and you know what the other one is thinking. Yes. Uh, and that is, a, that is a wonderful thing. It really, it's a wonderful thing. And it's a privilege. It doesn't happen very often.
So you've mentioned it quite a few times, and I know that this is the answer to to that question of your favorite piece. Um, you mentioned Cycles and, and Waldo, honorary Nightlight Collective member uh, yes. of, of the yes. Johannesburg branch. Uh, <laughs> Um, so, as you've spoken quite a bit about your favorite piece, do you have something that is sort of like your least favorite uh, as uh, a loaded question? I don't know. My least favorite? Have you written anything where you're like, oh, no, not this? Oh, <laughs> like... uh, yeah. I mean, name me one composer who doesn't have at least one piece that they feel slightly embarrassed about. And that's, that's a composer who's just lying. Well, um, it's, it's like I um, can't... Yeah, I mean, yeah, of course, America. You know, you can't write fabulous a fabulous piece every time. It's just not possible. Do you? Would um, you subscribe? And I do have a few pieces. I really must take them off my repertoire list. Of course, as Clive points out, some of my least favorite pieces are my most successful. Right. <laughs> yeah, that is. <laughs> yep. I I hear you with the the list thing. There there've been a couple of times now. There's someone who has been waiting probably for a good year. Um, shout out if they're listening. Who asked me like, oh, I see you've got a piece for violin and viola. Could I have a look at that? And they're like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Having a look at the Sibelius files, just like, oh, fuck no. Wait, let me let me just fix this bar, and then you sort of start pulling at the thread, and there's like, well, that bar's not gonna work. And holy shit, I haven't written like that in like ten years. And it's eventually it's sort of you know getting message. It's like new phone. Who this? Don't know. Sorry, I I don't have anything to do with music. What are you talking about? I know. I've got a piece that quite a lot of people seem to want to play. I'm just like, oh, it's just so not nuts. But anyway, would would you? At least, I mean, it, it, I assume then you don't fall in, in the camp of... I think someone was telling me that this is something that Brahms did, which is he destroyed, like, the majority of his works, except the ones that he really liked. Yeah, you could do it in those days when stuff was only on paper. But it, it's that sort of ridiculous, like, Brahms is the greatest ever. It's like, well, no shit, he only left the good ones. <laughs> like, I mean, fuck. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Greatest ever because we only seeing his best. Uh, stuff. Completely. No, we're not completely. seeing Brahms on a pretty day, are we? No. This is like, and here is my two-hour symphony where I do nothing but two against three. Yeah. So, what is the the best advice that you've ever received from a teacher or a mentor? I think, and I can't even remember who said this. This I don't know if this is advice I was given or just advice I sort of consolidated. Um, no, in fact, this uh, I know where this came from. This came from my very first encounter with Kevin, which let me with Kevin Volans, which let me tell you it was a very sharp learning curve. Right. Why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you writing this piece? Why are you writing for these instruments? Why are you writing this piece? And I think that is the most important question any composer must ask themselves when they're writing. Um, Because that that forces you to have intention in your piece. And if you don't have intention in your piece, just don't bloody bother. Yes. 
And so this is a, it's a very tough one because it means every piece you write, you have to interrogate um, your motives behind writing. Okay, I mean, we all write for commissions, so we can sort of, you know, put that aside. Yes. Um, what is it about this piece that is motivating you? Why are you writing it this way? That's, that's what I would say every young composer needs to grapple with. In I... fact, not even young. Everybody, every composer needs to grapple with with this every time they start putting notes to paper. Yeah, completely, 100%. I think mm. there's there's that uh, quote, so I'm uh, just paraphrasing completely, but of uh, Charles Schultz of uh, Peanuts and Snoopy fame, who uh, made a, a comment once, something along the lines of like, you know, if you are in a position where people will hear thing or like that you, you are in the rare position of that people actually listen to what you're doing um say something like it, you that that you are on that soapbox as it were and even if you as if you look at his, his at his comics i mean you know some if you like the humor or not and it, it's quite you know can be a little saccharine or whatever but there is a, a little bit of a, there's a message in the majority of his, of his comics even yeah, yeah. I was going to say, even if it's I Hate Mondays, but that's Garfield. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Thanks, Charles Schultz. That's all I remember of your work. You did not do the one with the orange cat. Uh, <laughs> I lie. I have a huge collection of Peanuts comics sitting on my shelf. But anyway. Um, so, yeah. What would you suggest for the new music scene in, in South Africa? If you had a suggestion or something that, you know, you'd like to see changed. You know, that's a, that is a very interesting question, actually, because now my, if you'd asked me this question like three years ago, I would have said, I think new music needs, needs to get away from universities. I think it needs to be taken on by people outside tertiary institutions. We need to find different ways to think about new music. We need to stop making, keeping new music so exclusive. We need to engage with other art forms. New music mustn't happen only as new music. It needs to happen with um, jazz or um, muskanda or whatever. And you know what? That's all happening. Yeah. That's all happening. I mean, how brilliant is that? How brilliant is that? It's is I, I am very optimistic. It. I think it. It is. We're in a very interesting time, but like in an exciting way with with new music in South Africa. I think there there are a lot of projects that are happening at the moment where there is a little it it feels like there's new breath in it or something i don't or new life in it i don't it know it's like there's a fresh impetus and it comes from people it's, it's come a lot of it has actually come from your cape town crowd you koila nicola cara um lungiswa um, all the uh, nikki shrira all these people working outside of universities and there's something really really exciting that's happening um, and it started happening here in Johannesburg too. And of course, now that we have Cara and Nicola, <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, I think it's going to it's going to get even more exciting. I, um, I'm, I'm I'm feeling very optimistic about the future of new music now. Whereas three four years ago, I was just feeling depressed. Quite honestly, <laughs> I'm I'm pretty certain. I, I think I mentioned this to you in a WhatsApp where it's just like I will be the the last person to turn off the lights <laughs> as I leave Cape Town. <laughs> It's also yes, exactly. 
like to be honest that there's a part of like why this this whole concept the show exists is because everyone's fucked off it's like well i'm gonna do something and still find a reason to talk to people i suppose exactly no i think it's good and i think it's i think this also shows south africans amazing ability to adapt and and change with changing times oh you know tertiary institutions are not giving us what we need anymore they kind of Never mind. I mean, let's not even go down that road. So let's make things happen in different ways. I mean, how fabulous is that? Yes. How fabulous is that? It's just brilliant. Completely. So that is that is the gauntlet, except for one more question. So what I do, and this is for, for people who are listening, um, if you have a question that you'd like to ask any composer, it's it's sort of a very general kind of question, but I think this has worked out perfectly for you. Um, I got one recently, and let me just see if I can find it. And the, the question is, um, aside from commercial commissioned work, if you're composing for yourself, do you wait for inspiration to strike? Or do you chisel away at something until you start create uh, or anything until you start creating something that gives you that yes feeling? Um, and then there's a follow on, which is, and if it's commercial commissioned, what do you do if you're coming up empty handed as the deadline looms? Ooh, empty handed as the deadline looms. Uh, what do you do you know what you do you get in touch with the people you're writing it for and you just say look um this just isn't happening and you just be honest i think i I would say that if the deadline is looming and you're coming up empty-handed do not just write a piece of shit (laughs) and and hand it over because that will actually do more damage than than being late if I were to come up empty-handed, I would contact the performers, say, look, this just isn't happening, What? I, and come up with some constructive suggestions of a different kind of timeline, or whatever. That's what I would do. The other thing is, uh, for the other part of the is that okay for the latter part of the question? That's perfect, yeah. If you're just writing for yourself, I don't just write for myself, because I don't write music for myself. I write music for players. Um, and it's a big, it's a big part of my motivation for music is I write for, for people and I write for instruments. I don't write just for my own head. I'd, I'd rather not do that. I don't think that's good for my head. Um, so I'm never just sitting, chiseling away at things by myself. I'm always writing. I always have to write with someone or something in mind. Um, and what I do if I don't have a commission is I will phone a performer I like and say, listen, must my diary is empty. You want something. Right. And the amazing thing is that every time I've done that, the commission has come later. Right. Um, uh, somehow the money is found. You know, uh, I'm not someone who, who just writes for the sake of writing. I mean, what for? What for? No. I, need, I need motivation. Yeah. I, I, mean, I can think of... Um 
there are a handful of pieces that that I've written for the sake of writing, but even there, it, it's for the intention of like you know it's for a specific performer or it's yes. for a project that yes. you'd like to see further down the line. Like the possibly the the purest sort of like I wrote it for the sake of writing piece that I have is is a violent concerto of mine which is yet to be done. Uh, he says loudly if anyone's listening. Um, but I, I, although that that's not fair, there there is no. It was written for a player, and and we're working on it. There there has been talk for a while to get it done, but it is it anyway. But the the point is that 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 was one of the few times where I was just like, okay, this is something that I've really wanted to write for a very long time. Let me do this. Um, well, Matthias, you're not allowed to just skip over. Yeah, well, there's a player, and there's a possibility. Whoop onto the next thing because now I'm like. When is this gonna happen? Oh, that this is it involves writing emails, and and I'm sure, as you know, uh, admin is the best part of being a composer. Oh, yeah, it's so much fun. Yes, <laughs> and sitting down, like I, I dread, I absolutely dread having to write emails or having to to just put words to paper because then the composer that that sort of like composer brain kicks in of like what if i move that word around there and i start it's like what, what put the comma on the other side of end just yeah <laughs> well what about in the middle here i just literally repeat the word of for 30 pages kind of like that would be great uh, yeah. <laughs> but anyway but Thank you. If do you have anything other than the the TED talk, which uh, will include cycles uh, tomorrow on Friday? Uh, anything? As I said, I'd like to to release this tomorrow. If there's anything coming up that you'd like to punt? No. In fact, you've just got me at the end of a kind of flurry of performances. No, it's Christmas. You know, it's um, because I don't really do Christmas carols. Um, yes. No, nothing that I can think of. Nothing that they probably are, but I can't think of them offhand. Well, it's if Christmas, it's holiday time. I cannot wait to go on holiday. <laughs> Luxury. Um, if yeah. if they if people wanted to follow you for upcoming performances, where best would they be able to do that? Uh, probably best to look on my website, which is www.clareloveday.co.za, and Claire is without an I, so it's C L A R E L O V E D A Y .co.za. Okay. Um, and I, you've also got a SoundCloud page, SoundCloud page where you can yes. hear the sinuses and you can also Facebook. Um, uh, I put, put performances up on Facebook and on Instagram. Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much for joining me. Uh, thank you, Matthias. This has been great. Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed. We will speak soon. We shall. We shall. <laughs>